Hey there, architecture enthusiast. Nikita Reed here, inviting you on an incredible journey through time and space with my podcast, Tangible Remnants. Historic preservation and sustainability? Let's go ahead right now and debunk the myth that they are opposites. In fact, they are two sides of the same coin, shaping our collective future. In a work environment, it has been challenging because I've had to probably do more than double just to make sure that I quote unquote fit in. But the environments that have allowed me to do me on the front end, I've been extremely successful. You look at all these PhDs, they've built that on the backs of our elders. Absolutely. What they consider themselves to be experts at is what they've worked with us to achieve. I know we have to. We have to prioritize people before products and before place. Join me as we unravel the stories of historic buildings shaped by the people of a specific era and often influenced by race and gender. These tangible remnants are windows into our past and guideposts for the future. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe now to Tangible Remnants. Let's explore the interconnectedness of architecture, preservation, sustainability, race, and gender. First, you should say phenomenon again, because you didn't say it right. Phenomenon. Yeah, you said phenomenal. It is phenomenal. Phenomenal. (laughs) Hey, hey, hey. Welcome back to another episode of She Builds Podcast, where we share stories about women in the design and construction field, one lady at a time. This season's theme is tools and inventions. We will be talking about ladies that invented something or were involved in the development of a tool used in our field. On this week's episode, we will be talking about the Sun Queen, a.k.a. Maria Telkis, a pioneer in solar thermal technologies. I'm Jessica Rogers with Fresh Eyebrows, based out of Miami, Florida. Hey there, I'm Lizzie Rar, and I just woke up in San Francisco. So I'm having my morning coffee, trying to get caffeinated. <laughs> and I'm Nurjiti Rivas on a full stomach in Houston, Texas. As always, we are not experts. We're just sharing stories about the information that we find as friends having a fun conversation. If you find an error, send us an email and we will all continue learning. All right. Our story begins on December 12th, the year 1900. The place, Budapest, Hungary. Maria Telkis was born. Her parents were Aladar Telkis and Maria Laban de Telkis. I'm not sure what her mother did, but I know that their family were basically wealthy bankers. Ooh, Hungary. I've always wanted to go there. I really want to go to Budapest. Yeah, that sounds nice. Mm -hmm. Okay, pause. Before I go further, I want to give a shout out to PBS and the episode that they did on Maria Telkis. In the written research that I read, I couldn't find much on her childhood, but this video right here, oh, it was everything. Ooh, definitely check out our show notes for that. PBS! Mm-hmm. Y'all know I love me some PBS. We do. <laughs> mm-hmm. We do. So, in the episode that I watched, they briefly talked about Maria's childhood and her interest in science and chemistry in particular. 
back in Budapest, they had a garden house, which Maria would turn into her own lab. She recalls being really interested in science since she was 11 years old. Whoa. She's building a lab at 11 years old? She meant business. I'm hoping she didn't like blow anything up, though. (laughs) Like what level of lab are we talking about? (laughs) (laughs) Like Dexter. Exactly. (laughs) All right. Well, they didn't talk about that. (laughs) All right. But listeners, I will encourage everyone to watch this documentary because it also gave context on how Budapest was at the time and how the world saw things like climate change and all that jazz. That's really interesting. I will have to check it out. Now, mind you, it was in the early 1900s and Budapest was running on coal as an energy source. Running on coal energy caused so much air pollution. It reminds me of Pittsburgh and episode 22 lady Dorothy May. Yeah, this subject has come up before on the podcast. Yes. So we'll fast forward to Maria attending the University of Budapest to study physical chemistry, where she would earn a bachelor's degree in 1920 and would move on to receive a doctorate degree in 1924. Dr. Telkus in the house. Ooh. Okay, but what's physical chemistry? Or I guess a better question is what isn't physical chemistry? Theoretical chemistry? <laughs> Yeah, my thoughts exactly. Okay, so for a quick little deep dive. So physical chemistry is when techniques and theories are testing chemical systems. It's the study of the behavior of matter at the atomic and molecular level, applying the principles of physics involved in chemical interactions. So that's physical chemistry. And theoretical chemistry seeks to provide theories and explanations for chemical observations whilst posing questions to be answered by future experiments. Does this make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I was just curious, like what the opposite, because I was like, chemicals are chemicals. So what's not physical? You know what I mean? But that makes sense. Theoretical. Yeah. But it's what we were imagining. The theoretical versus. Right. It's just a lot of these like definitions that I was reading had the word I needed to define in the definition. I hate when that happens. (laughs) Yeah. So it's like, how are you helping Like, I don't get it. So anyway, science folks out there, please chime in. This is way above my brain level. (laughs) I'm sure we'll be getting a message from my father. (laughs) I I I was wondering about that. Yeah. So Papa Rob. I have a feeling. We look forward to hearing from you. We always do. (laughs) Because there's going to be more of these little big deep dives, quick deep dive things. He's studied chemical engineering, so he'll have hopefully the answers. Yeah. He's going to want to bookmark this. Okay. (laughs) So back to Maria. A year after graduating from getting her doctorate degree, Maria would move to the United States to work at the Cleveland Clinic Foundation as a biophysicist. Okay. This episode is going to be tough because I feel like I'm going to be asking what things are all the time because she studied chemistry, Mm -hmm. but biophysicist doesn't have chemistry in the name. And that's what her doctorate is in. So what is a biophysicist doing? I'm apologizing to all the scientists for my extreme lack of knowledge in the science field. I mean, (laughs) maybe that's what physical chemists do. Or maybe scientists can dabble in different trades. Who knows? Scientists. I'm sure there's crossover. Yeah. Yeah. It's like science is is such an umbrella term, right? Yeah. Yeah. 
so for in the case of biophysicist, it's kind of like a I want to say it's kind of like a a strand of physical chemistry. So if you think of like the molecular structure uh, and chemistry of mm-hmm. bio products like plants or whatever, that's what I see or that's like the thread. Exactly. So that that's how you understood it. Okay. Yes, exactly. Uh, or at least that's my what my instincts tell me. Well, so while she was there, Maria would work for the Cleveland Clinic Foundation for a while. She was primarily conducting research on life transformative energy. Life transformative energy. Mm-hmm. That sounds <laughs> like the most important Thing we've ever talked about what the heck is that <laughs> <laughs> it sounds really intense and theoretical one might say but she's a <laughs> physical chemist <laughs> mostly i have no idea what any of these terms mean and how the crossover between them works. No, no, no. <laughs> this lady is all over the place okay I'm telling you, it's way above our brain levels, but it really is. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so basically at her time there, she was creating a device that recorded brain waves. So there's like a chemical thing that she needed to research between the chemical brains and the chemical physical machine. Yeah, yeah. You know, so that that's where all of these things align. And it wasn't just her. Right. She worked with an American surgeon named George Washington Creel Creel. Together, they would create a photoelectric device. Now, it's my turn to ask a question. What does that mean? (laughs) (laughs) It's like those machines that show if you have brain activity happening, you know, with the little waves Mm -hmm. and stuff. Ah, okay, okay, okay. But that's really cool that she helped create that. I feel like that's very critical to modern medicine, right? Mm -hmm. And I guess that can be... Life transforming. Ooh, one might there you go. say. Yes. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. I wonder how she was applying her physical chemistry, biophysical self in that equation. <laughs> that is a great question. <laughs> that is math that I cannot calculate. But what I will say is that Maria ran nonstop, okay? While she worked at the Cleveland Clinic during the day, she worked on her personal research and projects at night, which led her to the Westinghouse Electric Company. So in 1937, Maria left the Cleveland Clinic to work at the Westinghouse Electric Company as a research engineer. And at that time, she also became a U.S. citizen. That's a lot. Yep. Yeah, she's got a lot of things going on. Yeah, she's nonstop. She does all the things. So like I said, Maria was a research engineer. So at the Westinghouse Electric, she would focus on energy conversion, which leads me to the bulk of her work and the rest of our story. See, Maria was more focused on finding ways to convert heat energy into electrical energy. Mm. Well, By this time, the world already knew that we could convert solar energy into electricity. In 1884, the solar cell was created, a photovoltaic 
PV cell, aka a solar cell, is a non-mechanical device that converts sunlight into electricity. It's an electronic device that converts the energy of light directly into electricity by the photovoltaic effect, which is a physical and chemical phenomenon. Physical chemistry. Exactly. <laughs> it all makes sense now. Boom. Yes. <laughs> Boom. I'm finally picking up what she's putting down. Okay. <laughs> so the solar cell was already around, but the main issue people were working on was how to conserve the solar energy for future use, right? Yes. So up until this point during Maria's free time, she was working on solving that specific problem. So she would work on something called a thermal pile, which did just that. It conserved solar energy and it proved to be at least 10 times more efficient than anything that had existed at that time. Oh, that sounds really cool. Okay, but what's a thermopile? Why was it more efficient? In layman's terms, a thermopile is a thing that converts thermal energy into electrical energy and stores it, which to me kind of sounds like the photovoltaic cell, but. The way that it's constructed, it's a series of wires that can generate electric current when they detect a change in temperature. So that's oh. that, that's me doing more research on what a thermopile is. But yeah, when I think back then, the photovoltaic cells, they just weren't as efficient as they are now, at least in their early iterations. And I know that I'm probably getting into the weeds, but when I started to look at what comprised of the early solar cell of uh, or a PV was this material called selenium. And it's the main component or material used. And it's still important today because it's still we still use it in the solar cells. This was back in the 1890s. So if you fast forward to the 1950s, when they made another iteration of a solar cell, they introduced silicone material. And together with selenium, it became more efficient. So this is all to say that Silicon Valley. <laughs> yeah. Well, they, I mean, hey, a physical place. Well, no. Um, so it's. Just different iterations between a photovoltaic cell and the thermal pile. And they all contribute to one another as they are now. It's a lot of stuff. Tell it just. Sure. It just was more efficient. <laughs> a new a new thing. Got it. What I will say, though, solar energy research, it was becoming a topic of interest to so many people. So much so that MIT had a big initiative called the Solar Energy Conversion Project. So naturally, Maria was interested in joining. So she wrote a letter expressing her interest. So, spoiler alert, MIT turned her down. So <laughs> Maria was like, okay then, but I'm going to get on a plane and bring my thermal pile to Boston to show what she was all about. Okay, Maria, I love that she's like, they turn me down. I'm going to show up in person and convince them. They don't know mm -hmm. what they're turning down. I will show them. Did it work? Yes. <laughs> I got to say, before we know if it worked or not, I don't care. I liked her style. Yeah. Right? I love it too. And yes, it did work. Okay. So here is where 
the episode that I watched on PBS and the research that I read becomes conflicting. Okay. Because in my research, it mentions that Maria had a partnership with MIT and still worked at Westinghouse Electric, but she was living in Cleveland. So between Boston and Cleveland, I don't think she was working the two jobs. I think she must have moved to Boston to work at MIT. Interesting. Mm -hmm. It does sound tough to be in both places. I'm glad that MIT realized what an asset she was to their research. Yeah. I wonder, too, maybe she could have been still working in Cleveland and just like her research was under the MIT umbrella or something. But Mm, maybe. I mean, that would have been a tough commute, but. She's been known to work on a bunch of jobs at the same time. So I'd believe it. (laughs) So true. Okay. So, anywho, Maria is at MIT and it's the year 1939. Ooh. And I'm sure things are about to get shaken up with World War II. Always. Mm -hmm. Mm. All right. So, here's another piece of conflicting information that I got between my research and the episode. So, in my initial research, it says that the military had hired Maria to do research on solar energies to aid in the war. But according to the documentary, the military had commissioned the university to do research. So more specifically, it was the U.S. Office of Scientific Research and Development that was interested in solar energy research. Uh, same difference. In conclusion, she worked for the military. Yeah, I mean, I think if they hired the university, then they're hiring her, right? So maybe that's same, same, just different, like, wording. Yeah, I guess so. Okay, so here's where it gets interesting, though. All right, so can you guys recall any propaganda during World War II, like the Freedom Garden or the rationing of food and stuff like that? I know about rationing food, but I've Never heard of the Freedom Garden. So obviously you guys didn't have the American Girl doll, Molly, that lived during World War II. But anyway, because I knew about this stuff. (laughs) I did not have Molly. Um, I do remember reading her books, but I don't remember the Freedom Garden. So not well enough because I read her books because I didn't have the dolls. I read all the books. (laughs) I I read all the books, too. Yeah. (laughs) So during this time. The world was going through an energy and fuel crisis. Okay, during the war, one of the things that would happen is that opposed forces were bombing ships that had fuel, fuel that was like destined to go to the U.S. Therefore, they're polluting water and causing major fuel shortages. I mean, that makes sense. You're trying to cripple your opponent in different ways, right? Yeah, but poor fishes and all sea life collateral damage. Yeah, but it's a war. They weren't thinking about that. So, yeah. So during this time period, they were rationing foods and things like that. What they didn't talk about in my American Girl doll book was that they also had things like freedom rides, which was a way to promote people to drive at slower speeds to use less gas. They would encourage uh, public transportation. Y'all, they even rationed gas. That's really interesting. I knew they rationed gas. I mean, they kind of rationed everything, right? Because everything's in Mm -hmm. short supply with like supply chains being cut off. But I didn't know about the propaganda for like driving slower and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And probably carpooling, too. That feels. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of ingenious. 
All right. So this brings the U.S. government agencies looking for alternative fuel sources, right? So another fuel source like the sun. And what also was happening was that folks at sea needed to find a way to drink water while they were at sea. Okay, Mm. and they're not going to bomb the sun. So that seems like a safe (laughs) place. (laughs) Probably not. Okay, but was the drinking water at sea, is that a new problem? What were all the people drinking at sea before? Or were they running out of water that they brought with them? Like there's a huge history of people sailing across the oceans, (laughs) right? Yeah. Unfortunately, maybe they were drinking pee. (laughs) (laughs) And rum. Oh, yeah. Or definitely rum. rum. Right. (laughs) And port and wine. So non-alcoholic alternatives. Um, Maria, one of her first notable inventions is this solar distiller, which basically allowed you to turn seawater into drinkable water. Whoa. Okay, I didn't realize that desalination was a World War II thing. That's really cool that she invented that. It's so cool. This is considered to be one of her most important inventions because she created a solar distiller that vaporized seawater and recondensed it into drinking water. Whoa, that sounds cool. Kind of sounds like magic. Like the water disappears and then it comes back again and it's safe. (laughs) (laughs) It's amazing, right? So all life rafts moving forward would have this device and it even was like scaled up it was used to supplement water demands at the virgin islands maria saving lots of lives Mm -hmm. apparently yeah the virgin islands would be like uninhabitable without her who knew (laughs) okay so pause some tea that wasn't shared in my written research but it was shared at This beautiful PBS documentary that we keep referencing. Okay, so yes, Maria, she has this invention there. Everyone was definitely very interested in it, but it actually wouldn't get produced until way after World War Two, because what I didn't mention was that Maria had this boss by the name of Hoyt Hottle. I do not like where this is going at all. Mm -hmm. Me neither. But can we talk about the name Hoyt Hottle? Like, that's a lot. His parents didn't sound out that name before writing it on the birth certificate. Yes. Yeah. So Hoyt Hoddle, he was the head of the department at MIT, and he didn't necessarily agree with Maria's designs. Honestly, I don't even think he liked her. He was said to be somewhat of a perfectionist and very risk averse. So Mm. now here's what my uh, research got correct was that the military did know of Maria's invention and they placed an order of 100,000 things of these solar distillers to be produced. But whole Hoyt blocked the manufacturing of it. Come on, dude. Say what? I got to be so petty. This is life saving, a life saving device. Yes. Honestly, it's hard to understand why Hoyt would block something that would have been so useful. Yeah. But I'm not lying when I say that this guy was a butthole. Okay. (laughs) Uh, Like I mentioned earlier, Maria's invention did help people in the end, but her invention wasn't patented until after the war because of Hoyt. Haters are (laughs) always gonna hate. Jeez. I mean, I'm glad I still got patented in the end. But that sucks that it couldn't help the war effort when it would have been really, really helpful. Yeah, it's terrible. 
Now, something that we talk about often is what happened after the war. In this case, the boom of prefab houses or houses for the future, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, we've mentioned this on several episodes before and how there was a building boom after World War II with returning soldiers and an increase in manufacturing in general. Episode 58, Ray Eames. Episode 69, Kate Gleason, among others. Hey, designers and curious minds. Ever wondered about the stories hiding within your building's walls? I'm Carrie Seaburn, structural engineer and host of Unstruct, the podcast that decodes and simplifies major concepts of structural design. Behind the math and physics, structural engineering simply predicts building behavior. Join me as we simplify the complex, making structural design accessible to everyone. Nowadays, instead of measuring it via cost, we're saying, well, what about carbon, you know? We've got two levers now that we can, if, if an architect has an inefficient design, we can hit them with two levers if you like. <laughs> <laughs> the official casualty figure is 55,000. Everybody I talked to told me that the actual figure is at least three times as much. And I believe that. I mean, seeing what I saw, Turkish codes are good and, and they have been improving but compliance was completely lacking. Fluent in steel, concrete, masonry, and timber design, I'll bring you leading engineers to dissect the tales behind their building structure. Whether you're an architect, contractor, engineer, or just love a good story, this podcast is for you. Yeah, beam penetrations, that's a fun topic on this project. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Unstruct. From within your walls, hear the story behind how your building stands today. Yes, so the U.S. was looking at all aspects of residential design and the topic of a solar house came up. Now, again, the world had seen how they could convert solar energy to electric energy. But up until this point, there are even examples of houses that ran on solar energy. Oh, yeah. There were prototype houses in Colorado, Mexico, California. Thermopane windows, which is basically insulated glass, were a main component of how that system worked. They were basically trying to insulate the windows so that they wouldn't need to use any heating. But that wasn't enough. Exactly. Because the main problem was that it couldn't be stored for long periods of time. So the houses ran relatively well during the summer, but during the winter when there was less sunlight, they were out of luck. So that's what they thought out to invent. How can they have a solar house operate year round and what ways could they store solar energy? This is relevant even today. So in California, they incentivized putting solar on your house. And most of the time, if you make more electricity than your house needs to consume, then you give or sell your electricity back to the state's electric grid, right? So that it can be distributed to people who are pulling electricity from the grid. It sounds good in theory, right? But the problem is that so many people got solar for their house and now the grid is getting too much electricity from these houses, like during peak hours, and the grid can't hold all of this electricity and it can't handle it. So then the state has to take that electricity and sell it to neighboring states because otherwise the grid will get overloaded. And this is a long story and 
probably oversimplified, but recently they made it a rule that if you put solar on your house, you also have to have a battery in order to store excess energy that you get, which honestly is nice for homeowners because you have a reserve of electricity if you need it. Right. Or if the power Mm -hmm. goes out, et cetera, which with fires and stuff, they do a lot of like rolling blackouts. So it's super helpful. That's fascinating. I feel like Puerto Rico needs that. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know exactly what Maria is going to (laughs) invent, but this is just where my brain goes because batteries to store solar on houses is such a big thing that we're talking about right now, at least in residential architecture. But I also know it's kind of a newer thing too. Like that's part of the reason people haven't done it before is like the technology wasn't necessarily there. Like it was too expensive to make it easy for like any homeowner to do, but that's becoming, you know, less of a thing. Okay, so you are on the right track. So with Maria, she basically thinks of the use of Glober salts, which as a way to store solar energy. It's basically this type of salt that when heated would liquefy and the liquid or the water was a great way to store heat. And then she was able to see that this heat could be stored for at least like a week. And then so this heat can then become into electrical energy and whatnot. So at the time, no other material could do that yet. Well, she's figured out a way to store energy, even if it's just a week. Yeah, that's not nothing. Exactly. So in comes Buttface Hoyt. He was very apprehensive with the idea, primarily because it came from her, a woman. And he also he had some merit because he thought that the salts were too risky. Like I said, he's very risk averse and he just didn't know much about these global salts. He was aware of the notion that water stored heat and decided that this would be the focus instead. So focused on water as a storage device. So um, mm. together they would work on this prototype called Solar House One. And spoiler alert, it failed. Of course it did. Oh, wait, not again. Well, Failure is important in scientific experiments. That's how they gather data and develop something better. But of course they failed because they weren't listening to Maria. Mm -hmm. You know, that's right. So now you would think that maybe they would use Maria's idea for the second iteration, but nope. Hoyt was convinced that water was the way to go. Maria thought differently and they argued about it constantly. Maria, like a lot of our ladies, they couldn't be told no. Persistence is key. That's right, Maria. If the doors close, you find a window. So what Maria did was she got transferred and became an associate research professor in metallurgy. Glad Maria got out of there to go into something even more cool. Metallurgy is the art and science of extracting metals from their ores and modifying the metals for use. It is also the study of the chemical, physical, there it is again, and atomic properties (laughs) and structures of metals and the principles whereby metals are combined to form alloys. This is not to be confused with alchemy, which is what I first thought when Jessica mentioned she went into metallurgy. I was like, okay, (laughs) Maria is now a witch. But no, no, no. (laughs) 
She is still a chemical physicist, biophysicist, research engineer, now metallurgist. <laughs> no brujeria happening over here. Not right now. No, 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 no. Not right now. All right. So I'm sure that this work in metallurgy influenced her. But when Maria needed was she needed to find a place that would support her ideas or at least like like minded individuals that could support. Plus, she was still determined to create a house that ran on solar. In Boston, there had been some buzz on this female architect named Eleanor Raymond. She had just built a house made out entirely out of plywood. Oh, that sounds like a future episode alert. Mm-hmm. Eleanor Raymond was a residential architect in Massachusetts. So the patron of Eleanor's work was a woman by the name of Amelia Peabody. Oh, hey, Amelia Peabody was a jack of all trades, a philanthropist, a sculptor and a breeder. Also, she happened to be a millionaire, which helps one be a philanthropist. It took some convincing because Eleanor and Amelia had just developed this plywood house. But Maria can't be told no. All right. She was able to convince Eleanor and Amelia that the solar house was the house of the future and the three of them would become a dream team. Wow. This sounds like they're going to get some shiz done. Yes. That's exciting. And all ladies team. You go women. Yep. All right. So in 1948 in Dover, Massachusetts, the Dover Solar House was completed using 4,275 gallons of global salts. Maria was able to create a house that was kept cool and warm when needed by the sun. The most innovative part of this house was that it didn't use or have a furnace as backup. That's so cool. So her salt theory worked, it sounds like, right? In your face, Hoyt. Oh, yeah. That's right. In your face. All right. So one of a kind. The ultimate test for this house was if it was to survive a brutal Massachusetts winter. Shout out to our Massachusetts folks, because, you know, the winter's a whore. All right. So to top it off, Maria found a family to live in this house for this grand experiment. So. On Christmas Eve, the Nemethy family, a family of three, mom, dad, and a little boy, would move into this house. In the PBS documentary, we hear firsthand accounts from this little boy who is now an elderly man. Recount his experiences of living there. I guess we'll have to watch the documentary so that we can hear what he had to say. I guess so. Well, yeah, to hear a little bit more. But some aspects of this house that made it revolutionary, okay, was that it looked like an actual, like a modern house, okay? The house she worked on before, Solar House One, it didn't have all the features of a typical house. It was like a box with a roof and a window, you know? This was, and it like operated like a machine. It wasn't habitable, it was like a machine. The Dover house, on the other hand, it had rooms and all of these like, hidden compartments where the global salts were stored behind these walls and you would only notice perhaps like a few extra like little electrical doodads and little monitoring things and it was cool to look at it looked like a house just like a futuristic house so the family that lived there they were actually trained on how to monitor 
these machines and to document what was going on in the house that they were staying in. And they would send all of the information that they found to Maria so that they could keep track. Dang, I hope that it was fun for them to be a part of the experiment and to be living history being made. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds really cool to live in this house and like see how it all worked, assuming it worked well and they didn't freeze to death. They did not freeze to death. The house was a hit because it survived the Massachusetts winter. And by the following spring. Yes. Clap, clap, because it's amazing. By that spring after the winter, there was so much buzz around the house. The family would give tours twice a week, showing folks how the house worked. Maria loved the publicity that it was gaining. I mean, they were literally calling her the Sun Queen. <laughs> the Sun Queen. I would not <laughs> mind that name. Mm-hmm. I love this. Bask in it, Maria. Yes, bask in that sunshine. All right. So, you know who didn't like the publicity? I can guess. Hoyt Hoddle and MIT. Yep. Hoyt. Of course. Haters are always going to hate. Mm-hmm. Suck it, Hoyt. <laughs> Suck it. All right. So first, they didn't like that Maria was kind of doing this work outside of the university. And honestly, this Hoyt guy just really didn't like that Maria essentially proved him wrong. I mean, yeah. are they going to try to sue her or something? Did she sign a non-compete? Yeah, wait, is she still working for MIT at this time, like under Hoyt? Not necessarily under Hoyt because she was being a professor. Oh, okay. But after this, you know, it was 1953. The MIT fired her, saying in the letters between Hoyt and the rest of the other departments that the Telkis issue is resolved. Oh, what? what? That's a quote. I thought she quit MIT years ago. Oh, oh no, wait. You said that she transferred, not that she quit. My bad. Exactly. Okay, whatever, losers. It's their loss. Yeah, I misheard that too. Ugh, what party poopers. Why wouldn't they try to ride the coattails of her success? It would only benefit them. Because they're not thinking. Yeah, it's interesting. They're not thinking. It's a lot of things. So Maria still worked for MIT. She just wasn't necessarily doing research. She was teaching. So she was still at the university. So she did as she's developing the Dover House. They could have basked in that glory, like MIT develops Dover House or something, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, but they didn't like Maria because they were sexist pigs. Well, you know what? I'm glad now she can take all the credit. Right. Now she could take on the credit. And I was going to leave anyway because Maria continues to do cool things. She has all this popularity right after the Dover house. So she decides to keep working on some of her projects that she worked on before. The next work of notoriety from her was this expansion of her previous work, the solar desalinator. So Maria was going to create a new solar desalinator that was 50 feet long, and it would be able to generate 44 gallons of drinkable water. Wow. Yeah, make that portable water, Maria. Woo-hoo, drink up. Glug, glug. All right, so around this time, <laughs> Maria won the inaugural award from the Society of Women Engineers. I'm telling you, Maria was good. After getting fired from MIT, Maria would move to NYU or New York City. To work at NYU. <laughs> of course she was. She didn't need those guys anyway. That's right. Go where your talents are appreciated, Maria. 
It's MIT's loss. Oh, show. Yep. Because then at NYU, Maria would invent a portable solar stove. It basically was a stove that you could carry with you and you could cook a family meal. Homegirl would collaborate with someone to create a cookbook to go with it. It was called the Solar Oven Cookbook. Can this get any cuter? <laughs> so adorable. Like, can we get one of these? Kind of makes me think of the Easy Bake Oven, which is not the same at all because it plugged in, but just like the size factor and the cute thing, you know? Okay, I will say that the solar oven was bigger than the Easy Bake Oven, but it wasn't the little light bulb that cooked a brownie, you know? It was like, <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, sun. I'm sure it was cooler than that, but I don't know why. That's just what it made me think of. <laughs> yeah, Maybe I mean, it's it is more like cool though. Like, you air fryer size. So, six years after the Dover House was created, Things actually started to take a turn. The systems at the Dover House started failing. I don't quite know what exactly it was that was failing. It just seemed like several things were happening that were going wrong at the house. And unfortunately, they had to add a furnace to the Dover House to make it livable, which was one of the things that they were trying to avoid this whole time. I mean, all houses need maintenance like five to seven years after they were first built. So they probably just needed like new salts or something. Yeah, I guess that would be the next study would be like how to maintain the salts or like change them out. Or is there like a fil like, you know, like a filter that needs to get changed every few years? I guess also how hard are the salts to acquire? That was another thing I was wondering about, too, in terms of like replacing them or if it's like kind of a whole thing yeah i'm not sure i mean so at this point this is like what the 1970s and at this point the petroleum economy was like taking over petroleum oil was all over the industry the need for solar energy was becoming less popular so maria was still a big advocate for solar but by then, the world was already over it and it was just moving to petroleum. And now the polar ice caps are melting. That's such a bummer that people didn't want to keep going with solar at that time. Think about how developed it could be today if they hadn't pushed it aside only to come back around to it. Right. Right. It's like uh, they had the momentum and then they just stopped. Mm. So to our surprise, apparently Maria was retired in Florida in the 80s before returning to her home country for Hungary for the first time since she had left in the 20s and 30s. Retired and actually retired? Like she played bingo and stuff? From the look of it, yes. Well, kind of. Because she was retired from active research, okay? But she still did like some consultant work. But she might be the closest that mm. we might get to actual retired lady. So this is like a She Builds Podcast first, I think. And she was retired enough to go on vacation to her home country. Like I said, she went back to Budapest. Yeah. Unfortunately, this trip would actually be her last trip because on December 2nd, 1995, just a few days before her 95th birthday, Maria would pass away. Oh, man. At least she was home. Hopefully she was happy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's kind of poignant that she died back in Hungary, you know, comes full circle. Yeah. All right. So the saddest part of all of this is that eventually the Dover House got torn down and many people forgot about this innovative work. No. 
that's so sad that it's not even there anymore, like as an example or just like a historic building. Yeah. I don't know. I just. ugh. Yeah. It's nutty that I'd never heard about any of this until today. Yeah. Yeah. So I wanted to end this story with a really good quote that one of the commentators made in the video that I keep mentioning. Okay, so here's the quote. If you lay the groundwork, then someday when the crisis is big enough or the society is finally ready, someday at least the groundwork was there. So this was in reference to Maria's work. And that's how I like to think of about it, you know, that when we think about all the progress that we've made on solar technology and solar architecture, I like to think that Maria was a contributor to that. Heck yeah, she was. Absolutely. All right. So now we've reached the second half of our episode, The Carrioted. This is where we select a woman living today who is doing her thing, furthering the profession, and whose work continues to hold the profession up, just like the carrioteds or columns shaped like women found on Greek-style buildings. So, without further ado, this week carrioted goes to... Rachel Sue! All right, y'all, be sure to check out our show notes to find the link to an article that I read called Meet the Women Leading and Shaping the Solar Industry from EcoWatch.com. It was a cool article where they list some facts on women in the solar energy. They do like a brief description of the experiences of women working in that industry. And they have a list of solar companies that you should work with if you are interested in looking for a solar manufacturer. So in that article, they also talk about other women doing their thing and continuing the work of Maria in the world of solar. Ooh, very cool. How fitting. Mm-hmm. Yes. So in this article, this is where I found out about Rachel Sue. So Rachel is the CEO and founder of the company called Alpha Energy Management, which is a commercial solar energy company based out of San Francisco. Hey, hey, hi. Hey, hey. All right. So <laughs> Alpha Energy is one of the few companies that is women owned and minority owned. Um, and it's pretty cool to know. That in the same article, it starts off by saying that in the solar industry, only 26% of women are represented and that 80% of the executives in these companies are men. So Rachel is one of the few that are in this industry. Now, granted, this article is from 2019, but still those numbers seem relatively low. Mm-hmm. Alpha Energy was started in 2001, and in 2019, Rachel and her company won Sun Power's National Rising Star Award for their work. Wow. Sounds like she's really trailblazing in the industry and continuing the awesome work that Maria started. Mm-hmm. Agreed. This is 100% Norgeri approved. <laughs> With the stamp of approval from Norgeri Shivas. All right. See. So... Before we say see you later, we want to give thanks to CMYK for the music and John W., our technical producer. And most of all, thank you all for listening. Remember to check out our show notes for links to all of the resources on this episode, as well as pictures of the projects we've talked about. 
We hope you enjoyed learning about Maria and Rachel along with our banter and that you're inspired to find out more about them and other amazing professional ladies. Again, thank you. She Builds Podcast is a member of the Gable Media Podcast Network. Gable Media is curated thought leadership for an audience dedicated to building a better world. Listen and subscribe to all the shows at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. Please let us know what you thought of our episode. If you enjoyed it, please help us spread the word. Tell your friends, your bosses, your colleagues, your philanthropists. Give us five stars on iTunes and on Spotify. Write us a nice review. This will all help us reach a wider audience and for more people to learn about these amazing ladies with us. We're excited to hear from you and for you to come back and keep learning about women bosses with us. You can email us your thoughts at shebuzzpodcast at gmail.com. Leave a comment on our website shebuzzpodcast.com or follow us on Instagram and Facebook at shebuzzpodcast and on Twitter at shebuzzpod. Until then, bye! 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 Her parents were Aladar Telkis and Maria Labanan del Telkis. <laughs> Not sure what her mother did. Wait. Labanan? What? It's like Lebanon and Labna. I'll say it again. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? I'm I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success.